song of mine, we ended almost every service in Fiji with that song. So when we sing it, I'm brought back to those uh, years that we worked in the Fiji Islands. Turn your Bibles to John, 1 John chapter 2, around verse 19. We're in a section that I shared with you last week that I find it somewhat difficult, verses 19 through about 27 or so. And I share with you some of the difficulties I had in I have in uh, in this passage, uh, studying it, trying to share it with you. And one of the things I I found that's hard is the wording itself. And you might find that strange. Someone who has studied the Bible for a long time and reads it and says, "What in the world does that say?" But even after all these years reading this passage, I found the the um, the words somewhat cumbersome. Is the only way I could uh, describe it. <clears throat> the uh, translation, when we read different translating, Josiah's heaven, it's okay. <laughs> I'm glad we have Josiah here. <laughs> yeah, it's okay. I know some of you feel the same way about my sermons. <laughs> Just leave. <clears throat> anyway. Uh, you know, when we're looking at a translation, going into a, you know, translating from one culture and one concept and one language to another, in any language that's difficult, in any culture that's difficult, and I shared with you some of my difficulties in speaking cross-culturally uh, last week, but communicating is difficult at any level. Uh, let me give you an example from last week. I have a PowerPoint. The reason I have a PowerPoint is to help People see it visually, and a lot of my, what I call my young people, they have their notebooks, and they're writing down, and they're looking at these, at the PowerPoints, and it helps them to, um, to take notes. And some of my first and second graders have shown me their notebooks and what they've been writing down. And a lot of times they'll copy down what I've put on the PowerPoint. If you'll remember last week, I had one line that said, Jesus was not a true person in history. And another one, sin does not matter. Now, those were under the heading of be aware of the Antichrist. Be aware of the true Antichrist. And what I was trying to say is a true Antichrist is someone who says Jesus wasn't a real person and sin doesn't matter. Well, they're writing back in the back, sin does not matter. And, and mom was looking at them and saying, no, that's not what we believe. That's, that's what other people think, you know, so... Here I was trying to communicate it clearly and wasn't, wasn't communicating at all. Just imagine, you know, 20 years from now saying, our preacher used to say, then it doesn't matter. See, got my notebook right here. So I'm glad Mama's helping out there. Uh, some other difficulties. Last hour, Antichrist. You know, what, what does that mean? And just to suffice to, to say that we are in the last hour. This is last hour. There's nothing more. That God has planned in which all men can be saved except what he's given through his son. That's it. God doesn't have another plan. If he does, it is not revealed in the scriptures. There is no other plan. This is the last age. This is the last epoch. This is the last. This is last hour. That's all there is. What Jesus, what God has given us through Jesus. And then we come to this word Antichrist, and it's full of cultural meaning, too. But what it says, we look at what when we read it, Antichrist means exactly what it says. And then 
then um, John even defines and tells us who Antichrist is. What is anti? If I am anti-Alabama, then I'm against Alabama. Another way you can say that is I'm Auburn. All right. <laughs> you know, I was referring to the football team, not the state. Anti-American means I'm opposed to Americans and their beliefs. So anti-Christ means I'm opposed to Christ. I'm against Christ. I'm against who he says he is. I'm so to say he wasn't real means I'm antichrist. If he's just mythology, I am antichrist to say he was not God, that he wasn't the logos, the word, the son. That means you're antichrist. To say that sin doesn't matter is antichrist because it takes what he did for us on the cross and says that doesn't matter. If sin does not matter, the cross does not matter. Therefore, Jesus does not matter. You're antichrist. And then we touched on verse 19 and all that was really 18. I was, believe it or not, I was trying to cover this whole section in one lesson. I got one verse. I'm sorry. But, that's, you know, you have to deal with the text. Um, but before we get to ni- uh, verse 19, uh, I, I'm particularly sensitive to young Christians right now, young in the faith and young in years. How we look at the scripture, how we see the scripture, because I don't want to miss. I don't want to miscommunicate. I want to communicate clearly when we come to the Bible. There are some passages that are difficult. There are some passages that are hard to understand. But that, that does not mean the Bible cannot be understood. You can understand what the scripture said. As I said last week, what is necessary for salvation, what is necessary to live your Christian life is clear, is easy to understand. Let me give you an example uh, from uh, Ephesians chapter 4. Nothing can be clearer than this. Do not let any unwholesome talk Come out of your mouths. A first grader can understand that, I think. They might need a definition of unwholesome, but that's okay. You understand what that's saying. But only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs. So it may benefit those who listen. That's, that's simple. This is how you live your lives. And it goes on. Verse 32. Be kind and compassionate to one another. Forgiving each other. Just as in Christ, God forgave you. Pretty simple, right? What's hard is putting that into practice. Understanding that is easy. A first grader can understand that. So I want to say when when you come to the the Bible, as you're reading through it as a young Christian, if you come to a point, it's like, man, I just don't understand that. That's okay. There's some sections that are hard to understand. Just read on through. Get into some sections that are really easy to read. As a young Christian, I spent a lot of time in the second half of Paul's letters because that's where he gets into the very practical things of do this, don't do this. I could understand that. So don't be afraid of the Bible. Because on the other hand, if the Bible was, uh, was uh, if there was nothing in Scripture that probed us and helped us discover the depths of the mysteries of God or challenged our finite minds, then the Bible would be nothing but a self-help book. And so it's more than a self-help book. 
It's God's word trying to reveal who God is. And so we should expect some things that are difficult to understand because we just don't have the capacity to fully understand what God, who God is. And so I want to especially speak to the young Christians now. Because this passage, those first two words in chapter in verse 18, dear children, actually speaks to the immature Christian, the young Christians. And so as a preacher, I have a choice to make when I come to a difficult scripture like this. I can avoid it. And that would be stating that I think your ability that you don't have the ability to understand the scriptures. I think that'd be a put down to your intelligence. I think it'd be put down to the spirit of God within you. Yet, for some of us, including myself, this is difficult. But to take that stance would be to say that, well, we only need to speak to the level of the youngest Christian. And you don't want to hear the ABCs every time. You need to grow up and go beyond that and be challenged and, and, and be forced to think sometimes. As I said last week, it would be a whole lot easier for me just to skip this whole section and go somewhere else. Because it, it took a lot of mental work this past two weeks as I studied this passage. I want to I'm challenged to simplify this without being simplistic. I want to be I want to clarify without demeaning your intelligence. I know there's some Christians and some churches and preachers who believe that our morning assembly should be nothing more than a motivational time. Uh, you walk out of here inspired and convicted to do something. Leave these deeper subjects for Bible classes and personal study. And I'm not going to argue the merits and demerits of that philosophy, that that way of looking at things. Just to say my personal approach is to spend the majority of my time when I preach looking at God's word in its context and working through the passage. Whatever God delivers, I deliver to you. And that may not be the healthiest way, but it's the only way I know to. Really work, and occasionally I will go off and look at some topics too. But anyway, that's what we're going to do. We're we're looking through this text in First John, and I believe it will benefit us as we uh, receive God's word. Let's read verses 19 and 20 together. He says here, "But they went out from us, but they did not really belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. For their going showed that none of them belonged to us." But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. This is as far as I got this week. Let's look at this. The first thing he says, he's showing you who you are not. Now, this is really simple. You're going to see who you are not and who you are and what you know. That's my three points. Who you are not, who you are, and what you know. That's what I'm seeing in this passage. First of all, who you are not. You know... Society has sacred cows. Have you ever seen a sacred cow? I've seen sacred cows. Uh, when I was in India, I was in New Delhi several years ago. And on the road, the main roads were cows, sacred cows. And right there beside them, near them, were people living on the streets, hungry, without food. And we make fun of that and say, Oh, you know, there they had food right there, and they, because of their culture, their religion, they can't touch the sacred cow. And yet our culture reveres certain sacred cows. We have our sacred cows. And, we, and what I mean by that, we have certain things that we sacrifice at the expense of truth. Let me give you two of them. Nice and tolerant. 
Now, defined in the context of truth, tolerance and nice have their place. But when lifted above the truth, they lose their place. And that's what our society has done is lifted up being nice and being tolerant above the truth. As Christians, now you stay with me, stay, try and stay awake during this whole time because you're going to mishear me in a second. As Christians, there's a time not to be tolerant and not to be nice. Now, the opposite of tolerant isn't intolerant and it isn't being mean. Some of you may have just thought I said Christians should be intolerant, hard, bigoted, mean-spirited, closed-minded. Some of you heard that because culturally that's what intolerance means. The Christian opposite of tolerance and niceness is this, speaking the truth in love. That's the opposite of, into- of tolerance. Is that right? Intolerance? Tolerance. Whatever. Now just <laughs> tolerance and niceness is speaking the truth in love. And yet as a, a society, we, if we see someone we perceive as intolerant, it's the worst societal sin. It's a terrible sin in our, in our society right now to be intolerant and not to be nice. But the question we have to ask as Christians is, what is the truth? What's true? And then stand for that in love. In love. Just like Christ would stand for it. And that's why we follow him. We can go to several passages, even in 1 John. We, we imitate him. We follow him. We, we present the truth as Jesus would present the truth. In this passage, we see people leaving the fellowship. And in a society that reveres niceness and tolerance, this is unacceptable. And when I say reveres, I mean that literally. We as a society bow down to tolerance and niceness. The nice response to this, people left the, the, the fellowship. The nice response would be, go and apologize. Oh, we're really sorry we offended you. We didn't mean to offend you. We didn't mean that. We love everybody and God loves everybody. So, we, you know, please... We're sorry for offending you. We're sorry for our intolerance. We don't want to hurt feelings. We don't want to be seen as driving people away. So we do everything we can to be nice and to show how tolerant we are. And I think John would look at that and say, have you lost your minds? Or maybe he would say this. Have you lost your faith? Because that's what you're sacrificing. You sacrifice your faith. When you sacrifice it on the altar of niceness and tolerance. We don't sacrifice truth on that altar. We speak the truth in love. And we don't have to yell. We don't have to be mean. This has nothing to do with prejudice. prejudice. It has nothing to do with hatefulness. You don't have to frown. You don't have to be offensive. You simply express yourself. As Christ would express himself as you stand for the truth. You just speak the truth in love. And when John and his and the people there, probably in Ephesus, when they heard the truth, they left. They walked away. These people, John said, were anti-Christ. 
Now notice, you have to notice what it means. Antichrist means they were against Christ. They opposed who Christ really was. That he was not the son of God. That he wasn't real. That sin did not matter. And so they walked away. They opposed the fundamental teachings of who Christ was and what he did. And I want to just give a caveat here. We're not talking about matters of opinion here. We're not talking about people leaving because they're they're upset over some matter of opinion. People have left churches for all sorts of reasons. And many of them, most of them, I would say, over are over personal issues. In those cases, being nice and apologizing is something that should be done. But what I'm saying, we're not talking about that, okay? We're not talking about, I had an argument over red sweaters in the pulpit, and so I left, all right? I'll apologize for my red sweater or whatever, and, you know, if that offends you. But we're not talking about those matters of opinion. We're talking about who Jesus is. These people stood up, stood up and said, Jesus is the Christ, the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. And these antichrists said, that's not true. And they walked away. I'm sure some of them were nice people. I'm sure some of them were gentle souls. I'm sure some of them were charismatic people, people that you would like. But he says they were anti-Christ. They weren't kicked out. They left. And John didn't run after them. He didn't try to smooth things over for them. He simply says, listen, that proves it's the last hour. When you see people saying that's not the Christ, then it proves it's the last hour. Now, we don't get a lot of it in churches. We get a lot of that in schools. Our schools are filled. Our upper education every I mean, you can't pray in school anymore. You can't, you know, I mean, Christian organizations are put down. You struggle being a Christian in schools. Your teachers will tell you that's foolish. And then they'll, you know, and they're, and they're so charismatic and they're fun and they're neat people. But they're antichrist. And that's where the struggle is in our society. So John says, expect it to happen. There's people in your fellowship, he says, who really are not of your fellowship. And it'll come to light, and you must stand up for the truth, and you must not budge on this, and they will leave, and you let them go. Because that's not who you are. You are not Antichrist. Who are you? He tells you in the next verse. Who you are, verse 20. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. You have an anointing. And he says there, but, so he's contrasting here. He's saying, these are the Antichrist. They're saying Jesus was not God in the flesh and sin really doesn't matter. Everyone does it, whatever. He says that that's Antichrist. But you're not Antichrist. You have an anointing. All right. Struggle time. What does that mean? The word anointing here. First of all, you're, you're filled with religious answers to that books you've read. This is only used three times in this, and it's right here. Once in this verse and twice in verse 27. That's the only time this word is ever used. This particular Greek word is used. Nowhere else. And so as we read it, we have to determine what does it mean by the context. The second problem we have there, the word one, holy one, is not in the text. And those last two words, the truth, it's not in the text. 
That's our translators trying to help us understand what, what it's mean, it means. The anointing doesn't refer to the action of anointing, but to the substance of anointing. And anointment may be more accurate translation. And so we have to take off our religious glasses here, remove everything that we've heard on the radio. We've been told that this refers to, and let's just kind of see what the text says. And I tell you, that's a struggle. I've struggled with it for two weeks to read this in the context and try not to think about what everyone else has told me it means. That's pretty hard to do. Try it. But you read it and you just, you, you hear popular speakers and you, books that you've read and you think you know what it means. Most people believe this is talking about the Holy Spirit. The text doesn't say that. All right, the text doesn't say, I believe in the Holy Spirit. I believe that he indwells. But that's not what this text is talking about, in my opinion. What is it saying? First, there's a play on words. The word Christ means the anointed one. Did you know that? The word Christ means the anointed one. I used to think Jesus Christ, Christ was his last name. It's not his last name. It's referring to who he is. The Christ, the Messiah, means the anointed one, which means very little to us in modern day America. But in their society, in many other societies, when you are placed in a position, you are anointed. And you can read about um, Samuel anointing Saul, uh, Saul yes, and uh, David king. So a king was anointed to be the king. The high priest was anointed. Prophets were anointed. And here's the amazing thing. The, the, the Old Testament said one day there'll be one who is anointed one, the anointed one. He's going to be prophet, priest and king. He's going to be all three, which was impossible in their society. You cannot be king and you cannot be priest at the same time. It was impossible. We won't go into why it was impossible, but it what couldn't happen. But the, but the prophecies were one day there's going to be someone who's going to be king and he's going to be priest and he's going to be prophet. He's going to be all of those. And so he's the anointed one. So that's what he says. Antichrist means I'm anti-anointed one. And so now we have received an anointment from the holy, the anointed one. We are little anointed ones. We have been smeared with the anointment from the one who is anointed. Paul would say it this way. We are in Christ. Christ is in us. And he's not talking about some subjective, mystical anointing from the Holy Spirit. If that's your stance, you're going to get in some big trouble later on in the text. Because then, then everything's just subjective. There is no truth. It's just whatever I feel at this time. Whatever I feel the Spirit is telling me to do. He's not talking about a special gift that only special Christians receive. Some people read this passage and they say, I really want this anointing. I really want this. Anointing. What do I need to do? Do I need to pray a lot? Do I need to sacrifice? Do I need to give? Do I need? What do I need? I want this anointing. And so they're searching for something that's really not there. He's speaking, though, about what we know. You know that the key, if you've been here, the key word in First John is no. Thirty seven times he says, you know, you know, you know. And instead of you know the truth, it's better translated, and you know it. You know who you are, he says. He's telling the immature and the young Christians here and the mature ones who are listening in, he says, you know this. You know it. You know it. Verse 21, he says, um, I, I did not write to you because you do not know the truth, 
but because you know it and because no lie comes from the truth. He says, I'm not giving you new information. I'm reminding you of what you already know. And it comes from a rock solid foundation of truth. So my question was, what do they know? And what do you know? Because he's talking to us. So let's see what we know. We're going to simply just go back and review what John's already told us. I've, I've, I've found, I think, 14 different things we know. We know that Jesus was a real person. He was real flesh and blood. And yet at the same time, he was the word of life. Chapter one, verses one through three. We know that we have fellowship with the father and his son and with one another. Verse one, three. Chip talked about that fellowship that we had to, together. We know the gospel message. God is light. Chapter one, verse five. We know the blood of Jesus continually purifies us from all sin. One seven. We know that God is faithful and he keeps his word and he forgives us as we agree with him that we are sinners. One nine. We know we have an advocate who speaks on our behalf. Two one. We know that Jesus is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Chapter two, verse two. We know that we know by keeping and guarding and cherishing his commands. Verse three of chapter two. When God's love is expressed in our lives, we know we're in him. Two verse five. We know the true life is in the logos, in the word and in our lives. Two eight. We know we love our fellow Christians. And by this, we walk in the clarity of, of the light. Two ten. We know we've been forgiven, not by what we've done, but by what he's done on account of his name. That's how we know we're forgiven. Two verse twelve. We know all this from the beginning of our walk with him. We know the evil one has been overcome. We are strong in the Lord and that his word lives in us. 2, 13 and 14. We know that a focus of the, on the world only defocuses us from the love of God. And we know this world is passing away, but that we who focus on God's will live forever. Those are 14 things that right there. We know these things. We know a lot. We know a lot. Here's our problem. We have a hard time remembering it. Don't you? You know, the purpose of the Lord's Supper is to bring back to memory. We're called to remember because we forget. We have a hard time believing it. One of the biggest struggles many people that I counsel with is believing God's word when he says, I have forgiven you of your past sins. We hang on to that. We have a hard time believing this. We have a hard time putting this into practice. You look at it, it is almost overwhelming putting this into practice. And so, because we're so forgetful, we're so unfaithful, we're so inconsistent, that describes you, describes me. I forget. I'm unfaithful. I'm inconsistent. And so what do we do? We, 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 we rely on formulas, programs, getting a feeling. We rely on someone to lead us and, you know, tell us what to do, how to do, when to do. And John doesn't do that. John's cry is to remind us who Christ is. He, he, he brings us back over and over. Look, it's, it's not about you. It's about him. 
It's about what he did. Hang on to that. Put your foundation there. And not only who he is, who we are in him. All these things. I know that not because of me, but because of him. Because of what he's done. And so I rely on his faithful. I rely on his faithfulness, not my unfaithfulness. Or my degree of my faithfulness. We keep our lives centered in him. The things that we know through him. We anchor our souls there. John, over and over, brings us back to who we are in him. How we live in him. And how we are to trust in him. And the stress throughout the whole book is him. Everything you know, it's not because of our vast knowledge, it's not because we're so smart, it's not because of anything of ourselves, it's because of him, anchored in him. And so when life is giving you a hard time, things are falling apart, we struggle with things, John pulls us back, and I'm calling us the same way, pulls us back to who Christ is, and anchor ourselves there, look to him. He is our salvation. He is our, he, he is our hope. He is our strength. He is our all. If you're outside of Christ, no hope. I, don't, I, I have nothing. There's nothing else. This is last hour. This is it. God has offered you his very best, his son. And he's asking you, come on. It's not about you. not about how good you are. It's about how good he is. You come to him, trust in him, live, just live in him. He'll take care of your sins, purify you from every sin. If you're outside of Christ, we're going to ask you to come into Christ, give you that opportunity. If you don't know how, there's folks in this room, myself, our elders will be here in a moment. Other folks can say, this is how you come into him. Share that with you. And if you're in him, start believing it. Remember it. Encourage each other. Help each other remember this because we're so forgetful. And don't rely on your own faithfulness or rely on his faithfulness. And if we can help you, come forward as we stand and as we sing.